All right. Well, I'd love to invite you to finish that chat over a cheeseburger later on tonight, which I'm already getting keen for, but not as keen as I am for the Word of God. And we're going to read that right now. So grab out your Bibles and head to Genesis chapter 1. All right, Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and He separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And then God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. And God called the vault sky and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let the dry ground appear. And it was so. Uh, God And we'll stop there, actually. There you go. (laughs) Because enjoying it too much. And then flick over to John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jez is going to jump up. Hello people, it's good to see a room filling again, um, praise God for that. How about we, uh, we kick off in prayer and then we'll jump into that word. Our Father, we, we do thank you for your mercy on our region, on our land, particularly in regards to the virus, that it is as contained as it has been, that we can gather safely today, tonight, and we pray please that this might continue that more and more people might be able to get back to church, more and more people might be able to come along and check these things of Jesus out. We ask, please, for us now that all of us might catch a glimpse of what John saw in Jesus, the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. So please, would you be our teacher tonight as we come to your word? We pray this in your Son's name. Amen. Well, it is my privilege to launch us into our new series in John. Uh, As we launch a new gospel, we're going to take a bunch of years, just a little bit at the start of each year, to work through. And I want to begin with a little bit of an honest moment with you. I want to share with you how I'm feeling about preaching this part of the Bible. I want to do that through an image that will come up. Can you see that? Up the back, you see a massive ship, yeah? What you may not be able to see, especially from the back, do you see a little white dot down the bottom? Well, if you flick to the next slide, you'll see who that is. That's the captain of the ship, who is quite literally standing on what's called a bulbous bow. Apparently, it's attached to the ship, it helps it move through the water. There's the captain standing underneath this almighty ship. Could you imagine that? Can you imagine how you would feel with that? Tiny, small, humbled in comparison to something so grand. Well, I share this with you because tonight we come to one of the biggest, highest, grandest parts of the Bible. And I feel like 
to attempt to proclaim something so grand, so glorious. It was a little bit like on this dude who runs a backyard art gallery who's been plucked and stuck in the Louvre, or Louvre, however you say it in France, in order to give a, a guided tour of all the masterpieces there. I'm like, who, who am I? And, and if I was there and, and we came up to a Picasso, I think I'd just want to go, look at the Picasso. Wow. You don't need me, just, just look at the Picasso. I share this with you, not because my feelings of inadequacy are important. This isn't about me that I share it. I share it to alert you to something big on offer, something massive on view. And if you've been in this part of the Bible through the week, as I know many of you have been, I hope you've had a sense of this. Because the opening of John's Gospel is the most glorious, has the most grandeur of all the Gospels. Because John's is the most distinct of the Gospels. Now, we have people here tonight who are very new to the things of Jesus, brand new to the things of the Bible. We are so excited that you are here. And so my attempt is to try and bring us all along together. What is a Gospel? Well, there are four eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. The first three, Matthew, Mark, Luke, are called synoptics. And when you look at them, you'll work out pretty quickly why. Because they share much of the same content and structure. There's distinctions, but largely similar as they go about telling you the life of Jesus. But John stands apart in a very obvious way. And one of the reasons for this is that he writes much later than the other Gospel writers. John is writing this document probably around 80 AD. Because unlike the other disciples who were murdered for their faith earlier in the piece, John is the one disciple who wasn't. He dodged it. And so he's the only one who actually grows to live as an old man. And so he has had decades to reflect on his time with Jesus. To think and process just who Jesus is, what he said, what he did and the significance of it. And so as he puts his account down, he doesn't give us the blow-by-blow account, which is kind of like Mark, who goes, and then Jesus, and then he, and then he, and then he, and then he. John crafts this account which isn't at all to suggest that he makes up a story. No, no, no. But, but he applies the, the, the richness of literature to give us the account, which includes a prologue. The first 18 verses of John is called a prologue. Now, what's a prologue? Well, if you've read a book, you've probably come across them. It's the bit that you come across first before you then get to the story proper. Now, why does John start with a prologue? Well, for at least two reasons. Firstly, to introduce critical details that will help us make sense of the narrative that follows. That's what a prologue does. Introduce key themes and details to help us make sense of what will come. But there's a second reason John begins with a prologue, and it's this. To blow up your picture of Jesus. Maybe in that destructive sense, to actually blow it up to pieces if it's a wrong view of Jesus, in order that you might rebuild a true picture of him. But definitely in the sense of enlarging your view of Jesus. Here's the main point for us tonight. Let me give it to you right up front. Your view of Jesus cannot be too big. None of us are in danger of making too much of him. In fact, all of us, our view must be magnified. Now, there's two ways that you can magnify something, right? With the microscope and the telescope. The microscope magnification is where you take something that is small and you blow it up to appear bigger than it really is. I'm going to give you an example of one of those things in a moment. 
But then you can also magnify something through a telescope. And that is to make something big to appear as big as it really is. Or at least closer to what it really is. So you take a star, a little speck of light in the night sky, looks tiny, and you put a telescope on it and all of a sudden we start to appreciate more of what it really is, massive. That's what John intends to do for us as he introduces Jesus in his gospel. To blow up your view of Jesus. And he does this by introducing him as the Word. Now, this is where I start to make a mess of his masterpiece. Because I'm going to skip over bits and I'm going to dissect it. But just so that we can all come along with, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What? What's going on here? Well, we're introduced to the Word. Then verse 2, He was with God in the beginning. So this word that was there at the beginning is a he, is personal, relational. Then you come down to verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. This word who is personal, who is he, becomes a human being, which is what it means to become flesh. At a moment of history, this word becomes a man and we're clarified about who this man is, verse 17, Jesus Christ, the one through whom grace and truth came. So John gets to talking about Jesus, but before he mentions Jesus, Jesus Christ, and from there on references him as Jesus, he introduces him as the word. Why? Well, let's consider three things about the Word that we see here. Three things about Jesus that are introduced in this opening paragraph. Firstly, the Word reveals. How can you know God? How can I know God? Like in that real deep relational sense. Not How can you know whether there is a God or how can you know some stuff about God? But how can you know God? Well, there are some things that we can just observe about God. Creation. So as we look at the created order, there is evidence there of a creator and one who is powerful to create all this. One who is purposeful in his design, the way that he has put it together. But it's still not complete knowledge about God, far from it. How do you know what this God is like? How do you know his character? And more, it's ambiguous evidence. Because, after all, there is much hardship and suffering and evil and pain in the world. Do we then follow this pain to assume that God is evil, bad, responsible for that? No, 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 creation might tell us some things about God, but we need more to actually know Him truly. What about miracles? Can we know God by spectacular miracles, like no way, that just can't happen, and so I must believe in this God? Many people say that. If God just showed up and did something miraculous, well, then I'd know He's there, then I'd know Him. But no, see, there's this account in the Old Testament Many of you will be familiar with it, the account of Moses and the burning bush, which is quite an ironic title because it's about a bush that actually doesn't burn up. It's on fire, but it's not burning up. Do you remember what Moses does as he sees it? Essentially, he goes, hmm, gee, you don't see that every day, and he heads over to check it out. Now, what we, the readers, know is this is actually God showing up miraculously. Moses has no idea, it's just this strange phenomenon. When does Moses become clear that actually God has shown up? When a voice comes to him from the bush, Moses, Moses, stop, you are standing on holy ground. When does Moses actually realise that this spectacular miracle is actually God? When God 
when he uses words. Only through words can we know God, can we know what he is like, because it's the way of personal relational beings. We can only know each other intimately through words, as we let others in to our lives. You know that saying, a picture is worth a thousand words? Try saying that without words. <laughs> how, would, how would you say that? Now, there's something true about the statement, isn't there? A picture is worth a thousand words. There can be something in an image that is powerful. Earlier, I just showed you an image of a ship and the captain standing. If I'd said nothing, that image conveys something, a message. Scale, size, humility, insignificance but you wouldn't have known that it was a metaphor for how I'm actually feeling tonight as I come to preach this part of the Bible. Terrifying. Unless I'd told you. Unless I'd let you in to my life through words. It's the way of relationships. Words are critical to intimacy. And so, married couples, keep talking, keep talking, keep talking. It is critical to intimacy. John begins his gospel after decades of reflecting on Jesus, not by saying, here's Jesus, here's what he started to do, but by giving us the Word. Why? Well, he's saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Essentially, in the beginning was the self-expression of God. This self-expression of God who, verse 14, became flesh, became a man. And so, as John begins his Gospel, he's answering the question, how do you know God? How do you know Him intimately? How do you know His character? And John says, look at Jesus. The Word of God, the one who expresses who God is, became flesh, became a man and made his dwelling among us. I love speaking at our life series and echo Jono's invitation to come along Tuesday night if you haven't already to come and check out the things of Jesus. One thing that I always get asked is, why are you talking so much about Jesus? I thought I'd come here and hear about God or, or hear about the Bible. Why are you talking about Jesus? Because the Bible, God, has said, do you want to know what I'm like? Look at Jesus. He is the self-expression of God. Massive thing about Jesus that John introduces us to by introducing us to the Word, which then prepares us for the narrative that follows. There's a bunch of examples I could give you. Turn over to chapter 7, just for one. Chapter 7, verse 14. Remember, one of the functions of, the, of a prologue is to prepare you for details in the account that come. Chapter 7, verse 14. This is now the narrative. This is now getting down on the ground and telling us what Jesus did, where he moved, what he said. Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews there were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. And the readers of the prologue remember Jesus is the Word of God, the self-expression of God, which means something more profound about who Jesus is. Come back to chapter 1. Because what John is doing here is taking us back into the origins of the Word. Where does the Word come from? Well, he starts by saying, in the beginning was the Word. Now, in the beginning, these are massive words in the Bible. John, I read them for us. They are the very first words as you open up the Bible to Genesis. In the beginning... God created the heavens and earth. And on it goes to tell 
a grand account of creation. Well, what John is saying here is that in the beginning, when God then went to create, so what's, what's prior to creation? Nothing created, just God who speaks and creates. And John is saying, in the beginning was the Word. Before anything, before anyone was created, this Word exists in eternity past. There's the origins of this Word. In eternity past. This Word was not a part of creation, as we'll see further in a moment. The Word was with God, and read it, the Word was God. Notice how he takes great care to main, maintain distinction and unity with the Word and God. In the beginning, before anything was created, was the Word. The Word self-existed. And the Word was with God. There's some distinction that's been able to be drawn between the Word and God. And the Word was God. There's unity between the Word and God. He teases this out a little bit more in verse 18. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is Himself God, and is in the closest relationship with the Father, has made Him known. The Son has been seen. No one has ever seen God. The Son has been seen. The Son is God. Do you, do you see what he's saying? The Word was with God, and the Word was God. How is that possible, you might ask? And I wouldn't dare try and answer that. No sane Christian who's wrestled with these things enough for 2,000 years has attempted to explain that. How the Word can be both distinct with God as God. What we have here is a window into the Trinitarian nature of God. That God exists in three persons. God the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. One God, not three gods, one God, three distinct persons. But that doesn't make sense, you might say. And I want to put to you that that's one of, one of the many reasons why you can have confidence that you are in touch with the truth about God here. The fact that it doesn't make sense. This is not mumbo-jumbo nonsense, just mystical writing. No, no. John is very purposeful in how he puts this together. But think about it. If we, as finite creatures... We're able to wrap our heads around God completely. We get God, got Him, He makes sense. What would that suggest about that God? If we could wrap our heads around Him, finite creatures that we are, it would suggest that that is a God of our own making. Quite literally, a God of our imagination that we can wrap our heads around completely got down pat. No, no, no. John makes clear from the very start that the true God is not a subject to be mastered, but a God to be magnified, a God to be marvelled at. Be very aware of coming at the Bible as an attempt to master the subject. No, no, no. In coming to the Bible, we come to the God who is, who is like no other. And John uses massive language in the beginning, which conjures up glory and grandeur to say, the Word was there. Through verse 14, became flesh, became a man. God has joined himself to humanity in the most literal of ways. What? That ought to be another thing that blows our mind. It's inconceivable in other religions that the almighty eternal God would, would become a man. That's exactly 
what is being said here of the true God. God comes as the man Jesus, which prepares us for much of the conflict and confusion that's going to follow in the narrative. Again, let me give you an example. Come over to chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 30. Now, this is a man of Palestine some 2,000 years ago who for a job swung a hammer. He was a chippy. And he says this, I and the Father are one. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We're not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. And we, the readers of the prologue, shout, because he is. The almighty, eternal God who has existed before creation in self-existence, the Word who was with God, who was God, became a man. It makes sense of the conflict that we're going to come across around Jesus, but it also makes sense of the only right response to Him, worship. It's going to be some time until we get to it in detail, but in chapter 20, Jesus has died, He's been buried, and He is physically resurrected to life, witnessed by many including Thomas, one of his disciples, who's a Jew, who's a good Jew, who believes that God is one. And to worship anyone or anything other than one true God is something deserving of death. And yet, when Jesus stands before Thomas, Thomas says, my Lord and my God. Wow. At the centre of Christian worship is a man. No mere man. One who has existed from eternity past. The Word of God, who was with God, who is God, who became flesh. Therefore, your view of Jesus can't be too big. Your faith in Him can't be too much your affections for Him can't be too strong. Your obedience to Him can't be too high. For the Jesus that we meet in the pages of John is the eternal Word of God who became flesh. There's the first point. The Word reveals God. It's massive. Here's the second. Come back to chapter 1. We see it there in verse 3. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. This is the second thing we see about the word, the word creates. He uses a positive and negative statement to make it clear that nothing exists apart from being made through the word. Let me give you two implications. Uh, the first one is a, is a nicer, easier one. The next one's more confronting. Got another image to show you. And uh, this is a snowflake. This is an example of magnifying something small. I came across it just this week. It struck me. It's, it's a snowflake that has been photographed in the highest definition ever. Um, snowflakes are hard to photograph, apparently, because they melt very quickly. The light from the camera makes... And anyway, they've got this technology which takes lots of photos of the, of the snowflake puts it together and so that we have this image. Now, on the screens, pff, it's lost. You could imagine this on a high-def screen. But even still, look at it. Look at the symmetry, the lines that run through it, the way that it refracts the light, the colour. It's mesmerising. It's beautiful. It's one of millions and billions of snowflakes that are constantly falling in cold climates. Here's the thing. All things 
were made through him, through the word, through Jesus. Which means there is no sphere of life that you experience where Jesus isn't relevant. Think about that. We live in a secular culture which tries to live in a box with no regard to anything spiritual, to anything beyond. We just live in tight little boxes. The Bible's going, no, no, there is, there is no part of your life where Jesus is not relevant. He is the one through whom all things have been made. Which means for the Christian, we have a unique and profound relationship and appreciation to creation. Why? Well, because we're able to enjoy it and appreciate it in relationship with the Creator. We can look at snowflakes and all sorts of things and go, wow, I know the God that made that. There's one of the implications. Here's a second one and it's it's more confronting. It's good, but it's confronting. See, if all things have been made through Him, you have been made through Him, you are accountable to Him. If our lives have been been made through this Word of God, then that becomes the grounds for our accountability to Him. There was a man called Augustine who lived in the 4th century, an influential Christian thinker who posed this rhetorical question by, by asking, who has the art and power to make himself? Who has the art and power to make himself? Now, Augustine was expecting the answer, no one. But if he were to ask that question today, our generation would put up its hand and go, I do. We live in the age of self-definition. Because you have your truth and your reality. I have my truth and my reality. Do you see what's going on there? We have defined our own truth and our reality, which is different to yours. We are self-defining people. And our culture preaches the message be who, whoever you want to be. Don't be bound by anything that's come in our past. We're a blank slate. You write on it. And so we are quite literally living in a generation that is self-defining. We have redefined marriage. Big conf- uh, implications. We have redefined family. There are even attempts to redefine biological realities about human beings so that it's being argued, and seriously by people who are arguing, that there is, that, that bi- biological sex is not binary, not male or female, that actually biologically, I'm not talking about gender identity, it's a distinct thing, but biologically, There is no such thing as either male or female, that there is actually biologically a spectrum. Other claims that are coming out. Now again, that is is different from gender dysphoria, which is a very real thing, a very hard thing, and something that we want to love and support people who experience that. But, But that's a different thing to scientists actually saying, No, 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 there is more than just male or female. That's not the result of new scientific discovery. That's the fruit of a self-defining generation. Where even things that are as objective as biological realities are being recast, redefined. J.K. Rowling was picketed for simply insisting that biological sex is a real thing, male, female. We live in a generation that says we have the art and power to make ourselves. And as followers of Jesus, we've got to keep 
paying attention to the culture around us, the air that we breathe because it rubs off on us. But here's the problem. You can only be self-defining if you are self-existent. Like, truly, really, self-definition, like, I'll determine who I am, really, actually only works when you are self-existent, not reliant on anyone or anything that would put any constraint around you. And here's the problem. We are self-reliant beings. Self-definition is only possible by the Word of God, who is self-existent. Through Him, all things were made. The Word of God is self-existent. The Word of God relies on nothing outside of Himself. The Word of God made you, me. Therefore, the Word of God defines who you are. And therefore, you are accountable to Him. This is a massive implication about what we're being introduced to here about Jesus. It's a wonderful implication because he's good and he's made us for life. It's a head-on collision if we are a people who want to be self-defining and self-determining. Which actually leads me to the third point. There's the second thing. Through him, all things are made. Thirdly and lastly, we see here that the word wins. In him was life, verse 4, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. This is big, last big thing for us. Light and darkness take on significant meaning through the Gospel of John. Multiple meanings, actually, and we'll see them as we work our way through it. But for now, without doing the legwork there, let me just give you one of them. The world, for all of its beauty and glory and grandeur, snowflakes, the world is a dark place. Morally, spiritually dark. Because it's a world full of people who have rejected the Word of God and who have insisted on self-definition rather than self-denial. Who have centred life on ourselves rather than on the one through whom all things were made. And the effects of that, they are dark and they are everywhere. And at the root cause, the very root cause, explain the darkness that we experience in our lives. Now, we experience that personally, don't we? Some of you might be in a very dark place tonight. We experience that in relationship breakdown. We experience that in abuse, in violence. We, we experience that darkness in all kinds of ways. We experience it together socially. Let me just make a point on this one which I think is particularly relevant to this week we are living amongst a darkening social community this week you may be aware of this you may not a law was passed in the uh, Victorian Parliament which is called the conversion prohibition bill now if you aren't aware of it, I encourage you to chase it up to see what is going on there. Now, it's complex and I don't have enough time to talk about much of the complexity. It is a bill which has stated as its aim the desire to protect the vulnerable, which is a good aim, an aim that we want to go, yes, amen. The problem is, and I have read the bill and I've, many others have as well, it seems like it's going to do the very opposite. It's a bill that means that when a young child says, I don't feel like I'm a boy, I feel like I'm a girl and I want to become a girl. When a young child is taken to a medical professional, this bill 
means that the medical professional risks criminal activity by offering an alternative pathway to gender reassignment surgery. This is huge. Th this is not just people of faith talking about this. The medical profession are talking about this, where it would be illegal to get in the way of any desire for that kind of treatment. This makes it illegal for parents to speak to their own children about matters of sex and sexuality. If what they speak to their children is at odds with the doctrine of the state. This is huge. This bill means that Christians risk criminal activity when speaking and praying in line with our Christian beliefs, in line with what the Bible says. I was just in John chapter 8 the other day, and uh, there's more to be said about where this text lies, but Jesus deals with a woman who'd been caught in adultery. He says to her at the end, uh, I don't condemn you, go now and leave your life of sin in relation to her sexual activity. That's illegal according to this bill. Jesus has just committed a criminal act. Now, it is a bill in Victoria. Now, I'm no lawyer, but I have read it, and it's fairly obvious that this is going to have implications beyond Victoria. This is relevant to us. For a start, we have brothers and sisters in Victoria. This will change the landscape. But more than that, this is kind of just in the driver's seat of a bigger movement, which we can track through lots of years, actually, which is seeing the things of Christianity, the things of Bible, not just tolerated, not just disliked, but actually now outlawed. And so for me, waking up Friday to hear that that bill had passed without amendments marked a very dark day for our country. It's possible to feel like our days are getting darker, yeah? If you're paying attention. Because in some senses, they really are. What is evil is being called good. And what is good is being called evil. We, as followers of Jesus, need to come to terms with the trajectory of our times. And I think out of all Christians, if anyone's aware of this, you guys are. Because for generations, Christians have been able to live out their faith in Australia without any fear of real persecution. But those days are coming, have come to an end, unless the Lord intervenes. Following Jesus for us, for our kids, for our grandkids, will look very different than what it has the last 50 years. It'll look a whole lot more like what the persecuted Christians in non-Western countries have experienced for centuries. Now, here's the thing. I know what a daunting thought that is. I know the anxiety that that can raise. I know how that can seem overwhelming. What it means for your jobs, for your futures, for your families. I totally get it. But here's the thing. The answer for us as Christians to endure this, to stick with Jesus, to stand up, is not to just kind of close our eyes, block our ears and just, can we go and live a nice Central Coast life? Can we just kind of get back to the experiences that we enjoy? That's Victoria's problem and I'll, I'll try and come to church. And That approach will not hold you in good stead over the coming years and decades. The answer isn't to pretend otherwise. The answer is the gospel as expressed in verse 5. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Here's the big thing. Darkness does not win. Jesus wins. The light wins. How can we be so sure? Well, John, in his introduction, he's kind of saying, hey, let me tell you how it ends. Jesus wins. And not because of a philosophy. The light is not a philosophy. It's not a political party. 
when I say to you, friends, brothers and sisters, followers of Jesus, stick with Jesus, the darkness will not win, the light will overcome, that is not some Christian pep talk. Christian pep talks will not equip us for our life of following Jesus. It won't hold up. Positive thinking, it won't work. What will work? Verse 14, history. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory. Here's the reason we can be confident that the light wins. A baby was born in a barn in the arms of Mary and he was called Emmanuel, which means God with us. As readers of the Pogologue would go, yes. A boy born who would grow up to be a man on a mission to die. Wasn't it good to unpack that last week? Jesus' crucifixion being the darkest of all places and moments in history. Why? Because all of God's just judgment for the way that sinners has thrown his rule off, who have chosen self-definition, all of that judgment is placed on the Word who became flesh, Jesus, and is absorbed by him. It is the darkest moment in history, but it's also the most glorious one. Because in love, God has done this so that we might be spared. By his death, God was dealing a knockout blow to darkness. In the death of Jesus, he was making a public spectacle of the rulers and powers of darkness. And by his resurrection, he was confirming that darkness and death have no hold of him. Darkness and death have no place in his new creation, which is coming. And darkness and death will have no hold over those who belong to him. Whose view of Jesus has been blown up so that we might see who he truly is and believe. Friends, the word wins. Light wins. Know that as you go about your life, as the years roll on, as we face very real challenges to remain faithful to Him. As it becomes harder to live as Christians in Australia, remember, Jesus wins. Even if we are locked up, sent to prison for following Jesus, Jesus wins. Even if all of Western civilization were to unravel, the darkness has not overcome the light. And all those who believe in Jesus, who remain faithful to him, overcome. So that one of many statements in the New Testament, which we are urged, you'll see it on the next slide in James, we are told, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised for those who love him. The New Testament says, do not give up your confidence, it will be richly rewarded. Hold unswervingly to the hope that we have, for he who promised is faithful. Jesus wins. What do we do with all of this? Well, three very quick things. Some of you might be at a point tonight where you're like, I don't know if I can keep following Jesus. The cost is great. I'm finding it hard. Well, the word to you tonight is keep going. Keep going. Light conquers. Those who belong to him conquer. Where else will you go? Who else has the words of eternal life? Stick with Jesus. Let your view of him be blown up. Secondly, it's a new year. Maybe new rhythms and routines are being established. Where are the words of God in your rhythms and routines? Is this a time for you to rethink your discipline in coming to the Word of God? How else do you know God? But that He would speak and let you in. He's done it. Maybe this is a moment for you to recommit 
or start reading for the first time. Grab those daily reading notes, super helpful tool for getting you in the Word. But thirdly, lastly, in, in one sense, above all of this, beyond anything to start doing or stop doing on Monday, the biggest thing for us is to have our view of Jesus blown up. To behold your God, the Lord Jesus Christ, to look at him, to think on him, to magnify him, to marvel at him. Because we worship the man who reveres God intimately. We worship the man through whom all things were created powerfully. And we worship the man who is victorious over the deepest darkness. And by faith in him, by merely looking to him, he is yours and you are his. Keep looking to Jesus. Maybe come for the first time tonight to trust in Jesus. Let me pray for us. Well, Lord God, we thank you for your kindness to us and gathering us together tonight and bringing us before these words that have been faithfully recorded and handed down to us that we might have a true window into who you really are and most specifically into who Jesus is. We confess, Lord, that we are slow to see him in all his glory. Forgive us. Be patient with us. We are slow to be humbled by him. We are, we are slow to have our affections stirred for him. Forgive us and do that in us more and more. Might this change our lives? We pray particularly as we live in and increasingly so times that are challenging to follow Jesus. Would you give us the strength to stand with him as he stands with us? Would you do that by continually enlarging our view of him? We pray this in his name.